7. It's on page 205 if you're going to use one of the Pew Bibles. One of the challenges of doing a Sunday evening service is we don't have the full amount of time that we would for Sunday morning, which is a beautiful thing. It can also be definitely a challenge. So there's no time for rhetorical flourish or metaphors or things like that. We need to just get right to the text and make sure that we're saying what's most important. And so we're going to do that today. I'm going to spend just a minute setting the scene because this is a secondary um, sermon series, if you will. So we want to make sure that we're taking the time to set the scene appropriately so that we're refreshing hearts and minds on what's going on here. And then I'm going to read the scripture and we're going to pray. The pattern of the book of Judges in general is one of a downward spiral of sin, of idolatry and apostasy. Uh, the end result is chaos and calamity. At the end of the book of Judges, it's not well, it's a scene that's really not for the faint of heart. And it's presented, it's a highly organized book. It's presented through cycles. There are seven cycles, which is important because seven is the number of completion and fulfillment. So it represents a complete downward spiral. And what we are about to look at is the, is the fourth cycle, which is the middle cycle. And that's important because in Hebrew poetry and prose, the middle is the point of emphasis, literally the central focal point. And we see that with Gideon, who is a, if you want to use the word famous or well-known judge during this period. The pattern of each cycle is generally the same. It is idolatry, followed by God chastising and disciplining for idolatry. And then the people cry out for deliverance in the midst of their condition. And then God raises up a judge. With this fourth cycle, we see the idolatry in chapter 6, verse 1. This precedes the passage that we're looking at. Chapter 6, verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then right after that, in verses 1 and 2, we see God chastising and disciplining. Scripture says, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So we see the people fled. Then the people cry out for deliverance. Verse 7 says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, and then finally, God raises up a judge, and that is Gideon, which brings us to our passage today. Hopefully by now, that was enough time to get you to page 205, if that's where you need to go. So I'm going to read the scripture, and then we're going to pray, and we'll get started. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abia's right, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? 
Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Let's pray. Father, this night, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom, for your grace, for your mercy, for your Christ. We pray this evening that the people, that you would give the people ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive your word and your message contained within this word. We pray, I pray for myself that I would be nothing more than the voice of the text and certainly nothing less. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So three points are going to frame our time. As I said, no, no rhetorical flourish here. We're getting straight to the point. So three points are going to inform our time and then some application at the end. Point one is the call. And there are a couple things towards the beginning of the passage, and it's really going in order of the text generally. So point one is the call, and I want you to see a couple things within the call. First and foremost, God does it. Verse 11 says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. God initiates. The angel of the Lord came. God initiates. He sought out Gideon. He approached Gideon. God initiated. We're going to come back to that point later. The other thing that I want to point out is one simple word that I had to look up when I was looking at this at this passage that became really important, terebinth. I don't know about you, but I had no idea what a terebinth was. No clue when I read this. Sometimes rendered as 
an oak just because of the way the Hebrew looks at, but here it's a terebinth. We call a terebinth tree a pistachio tree. Still exists in Israel today. It's a pistachio tree. So we can translate that into something that we now understand what that is. But the point is the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for terebinth, the Hebrew word for that tree is Elah, goddess. That's not an accident. That's not just a happenstance of language. Because you see, at this time, the pagans in that area, among other things, we saw references to altars, references to high places. The pagans would worship this type of tree at that time. They would perform acts of worship and leave offerings and presents and things like that to the tree. So the idea that this tree is called goddess is not an accident. And we can see that this, in this passage, there is a theophany, a vision of God. Whether it's just the fire, whether it's the angel of the Lord entirely, I'll leave that up to you to decide, but we can clearly see that there's a vision of God because we see in verse 16, the Lord said to him. So what we see is a visible manifestation of the one true God standing next to goddess. And as part of the call, we want to see what the one true God says. The one true God says in verse 12, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then in verse 14, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. This is a fantastic statement. And you'd be forgiven if you initially read this and thought it was a joke. There's nothing that Gideon has done whatsoever at this point to show us that he is a mighty man of valor. He wasn't looking to confront the Midianites. He wasn't looking to confront anybody. He was hiding wheat. He was going about a totally different process of gathering and preparing wheat so that it wouldn't be found because the Midianites were raid raiding their territory and stealing food. So he was putting wheat in a place that people wouldn't look for it so that he could eat. He wasn't a man of valor. He was more like a rat looking to survive. And there's also nothing about Gideon's response that would give us any confidence either. Right after the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, he asks why all this is happening to them if the Lord is with us. He asks how that's even possible. Not only that, Gideon doesn't describe himself as a mighty man of valor. He says his clan is weak and he is a nobody. What do you mean me? And this brings us to a very important point, church. And that's why I had initially titled this passage, or my sermon, I didn't title the passage, I titled the sermon, God, not Gideon. You see, that brings us to a very important point. God did not choose Gideon because Gideon was capable. He didn't choose someone that was already out starting an insurrection or a rebellion and throw his weight behind that guy. God chose Gideon because God is capable, not because Gideon was capable. 
I had a conversation a long time ago with a Christian man. It was a beautiful conversation, and he, he gave me a phrase that maybe you've heard, but it, maybe you haven't, but it stuck with me. And he said, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And that's a beautiful thought. And we see that in the Lord's response too. Verse 16, but I will be with you. Gideon says, how's all this going to happen? I will be with you. Christians, today, let's take this out of the Old Testament and out of history and move it to right now. If you are called to do something that feels far beyond your capabilities, that feels like more than you can bear, that you don't even know where the next step forward is, God is with you. Are you dealing with death and loss that feels unbearable? God is with you. Are you caring for loved ones and feeling the stress and feeling overwhelmed and don't know how, much, how there's going to be enough time in the day? God is with you. Are you dealing with difficult family situations? Are you dealing with difficult interpersonal situations? God is with you. Are you dealing with financial woes? God is with you. And we know that because of point two, the proof. Verses 19 through 21 show us the proof. You see, Gideon makes a meal for this angel, for this man that he doesn't know yet is an angel of the Lord. This isn't a worship offering, this is a hospitality offering. Instead of eating it, the angel makes, who at this point Gideon still thinks is a man, makes a really strange request. He asks him to pour it out on a rock. And then he touches it with his staff and fire springs up and consumes it. It's important because fire is a symbol of the Lord's presence. It can also be sometimes shown as a symbol of his judgment, but it's a symbol of his presence. We see it elsewhere in Scripture. In Exodus 3, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush. In Exodus 13, the Israelites were led out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. You see, the fire, and not just the fire itself, but that it came out of supernatural circumstances is proof that God really was with Gideon and that his message was trustworthy. That's why he gave the response that he did after seeing that. Gideon would have understood that symbol and known what it meant. But it's important because even that is just a foretaste. The ultimate proof that God is with us comes later. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, which quotes Isaiah 7, chapter 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the ultimate proof that God is with us. Because there is no better way to prove that God is with us than for God to enter into this world, walk with us, do it blamelessly, absorb our sins by willingly undergoing a public shaming and execution on a Roman torture device that we call a cross. 
Christians, take heart today. Know that this God who initiated a good work in you has promised that He is with you and will personally see it to completion. And this God does what He says. He has given us ample signs that this is true. He gives us fire in the Old Testament among many other things. He gives us the Gospels in the New Testament which share the story of Jesus Christ, His Son. And so we have point one, the call. Point two, the proof. Point three, the response. We see the faith of Gideon, sort of. His immediate response, we'll break it down into the immediate response and then what happened later. The immediate response is verse 22. He says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. His immediate response was fear. Reverent fear, like Pastor Raymond talked about this morning. This is the biblically correct response. Over and over again, Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, meaning if that is the beginning of wisdom, there is no wisdom outside fear of the Lord. None. This is the reaction of Isaiah when he has a vision of the Lord. Woe is me. This is the reaction of the disciples during the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17 actually uses the word terrified. They were terrified. Biblically correct response to God's call does include fear, reverent fear. It's more than just fear. It's not like a horror movie. There's reverence. There's awe. There's worship. But it cannot be less than fear. So we might expect, after seeing this miraculous sign, I mean, after all, you, you touch some meat and bread with a staff and fire springs up out of a rock. You might expect that after seeing that sign that Gideon would be radically, instantly, and completely changed. Never takes a wrong step again in his life. But that's not what we see. And this is the beauty of this passage. Because his subsequent response can be summed up in verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. God asked him to tear down a statue or an altar. He asked him to tear down an altar that the people, rightly or wrongly, definitely wrongly, cared about very much. And he asked him to build an altar to the one true God. Gideon did it. He did do it, technically. But the mighty man of valor didn't do it in the middle of a day. The mighty man of valor did it in the middle of the night so that nobody would see him, so that he wouldn't have to get into a fight about it, so that nobody would argue with him, so that nothing bad would happen to him. Christians, this is us. This is what Sean had said. Sanctification is a rocky road. This is what our sanctification journey looks like. We must look at this scripture and 
and see something of ourselves in Gideon, we must look at all of Scripture when we see these things portrayed and see people turn away from the Lord and see people make faltering steps. We must see something of us in them. And just like Gideon, we fear the Lord, but we still fear other things. The reaction of others could be financial woes, could be adverse circumstances, could be anything. Here's the beauty of this passage, and here's the beauty of the gospel message. God knows that and is still with us. More than that, God knew it all along and chose us anyway. You see, the story of a God who chose somebody who was already leading an uprising and looked really qualified to do it, and then he puts his weight behind that guy, that's not worthy of worship. That's just sound management principles. That's good HR skills. That's not worthy of worship. But God calling somebody who has absolutely no business doing what God is calling him to do and raising him up and gradually making him qualified to do what God is asking him to do and God knowing the steps that he's going to take are not going to be perfect and God says, I get it, you're still mine and I'm putting my stamp, my name on you. That is worthy of worship. That is a God worth giving everything for. More than that, it's not a burden for Him to do it. It's not a burden for Him to choose us. It's not a burden for Him to walk with us. It's not a burden for Him to promise to be with us. He delights in it. Praise God. And so we see over time, Hopefully our path looks like the opposite of the downward spiral in Judges. Over time, sanctification is a rocky road, yes, but it looks like progressively less fearing other things and progressively more fearing the Lord, meaning reverent fear, as He continues to walk with us and continues to make us more like Christ. That's why this passage is about God, not Gideon. Gideon might be at the center of it, but God's behind it. So how do we apply this? What do we do? What do we do in light of this passage? Well, that depends. If you're not a Christian, if you don't identify as a Christian, and maybe you're here to support a family member, or just because you hadn't been in church in a while. First of all, thank you for being here. It's a privilege to have you here. If you're not a Christian, the most important thing you can do in light of this passage is let go of the world's message of doing life yourself. Let go of the world's message that you are in control, that heaven, hell, life, death are what you make of it, that it's all in your hands, and all you need to do is believe in yourself. 
I ask you without a hint of judgment because I used to be you. Honestly, when you sit here, do you feel like you can affect or change some sort of eternal cosmic reality? I don't. I can't even make a traffic light turn green. So no, I don't. Scripture tells us what should be common sense in the first place. You can't. But it tells you that there is a God and He can because He set it all in motion in the first place. God is in charge. He is in charge. And because it's all His, He gets to decide who goes where, who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, who gets eternal blessing, who gets eternal punishment. And He does it on His own terms. And He has decreed that none of us are holy enough on our own merit. And by holy enough, I mean as holy as Him. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so understand that without this fear of the Lord, which includes knowledge of who Jesus is and acceptance of Him as Lord and Savior, because that is who He said He was, without this, you will fall short. But don't leave here without hope. Because this passage shows us that not only is there a God and He's in charge, but because of that, He acts. He initiates. Remember, Gideon wasn't looking for God. He was looking to hide wheat. He was looking to save some provision for tomorrow. But God sought him out. God called him. God repeatedly says in Scripture that He will seek out His people, His scattered sheep as He calls them, and He says He will bring them back to Himself, and He says this is a certainty. It will happen. And God has acted once and for all in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who called Himself the Good Shepherd and whose work on the cross proved that to be true. Christ Jesus is the one who, after that work on the cross, was raised in glory to everlasting life so that we may have it too by believing in Him. I just mentioned Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. The very next verses, 24 and 25, say this, "...and are justified by His grace as a gift." through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Friends, there is hope. And if this is the first time you're ever hearing something like this, know that that hope is better than anything that you're going to find out there outside of these four walls. And that hope is on offer right now. Ask God into your life today. And if you don't know how to do that, turn to the person next to you or me and ask them to help you.
It would be our privilege to pray with you and to walk alongside you and to open the Bible with you and show you what it says about God and about Jesus and about us as people. So that's non-Christians. What about Christians? What do Christians do with this, with this passage? Very simple. We leave here humbled and we leave here refreshed. We leave here humbled because God acts, and we leave here refreshed because God acts. You see, we leave here humbled because God initiates, just as He did in this passage, so He does now. We do not initiate. We did not initiate our own salvation. We do not affect our own salvation. God is totally sovereign, and He has chosen us, again, not because we are able, but because He is so we leave here humbled and we fear and revere the Lord anew. And we remember specifically in this passage that Gideon only became Gideon because God is God. And you are only you and I am only me because he is him. And we leave here refreshed because God acts, he sustains. We don't have to sustain ourselves. We just need to trust that the same God who wanted to call us still wants to bring us to Him and that He will do whatever it takes to make that happen and that the blood of His only Son is the ultimate proof. We leave here knowing that this is a book of judges, rulers, if you will, and whereas Gideon was a judge, Jesus is the judge. Gideon judged for a time, and Jesus will judge for all time. And we leave here refreshed because we know that this passage, this promise that God gave, and all of his promises find their amen in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time.